If I say to you, go to your happy place, what is the place that comes to mind? Is it a physical location like a coffee shop or maybe a garden somewhere or just some sort of quiet reading nook or something like that? Is that your happy place? Is it a place where you have noise-canceling headphones? Is that your happy place? Is your happy place not a physical place, but just something you like go to in your mind? Like, is that what you'd call, oh, my happy place is this mental state? Um, Like many other things, the internet has skewered the idea of a happy place, and there's uh, a couple fun ones that I found um, online. I want to show you a couple of them. It's like this one says, go to your happy place, go to your happy place. Oh, never mind, punch them. Um... I don't know why we have to be violent, but there it is. Uh, next one says, uh, my happy place is your happy place burning to the ground. And there's just a lot of vindictiveness in that, but that is apparently true for some people, that I cannot be happy unless you suffer. Uh, and this last one I definitely relate to today even, for sure, my happy place is wherever my coffee is. If there is coffee um, and I'm caffeinated, that is a very good and happy place to be. Uh, a lot of these ideas are that, that happiness is a place you go to, or a place you go to in your mind, and, and, and I don't think that's true. I think reality is happiness is a byproduct of you doing and participating in other kinds of things. It is not a, a place to go to um, in, in itself. And so we've been kind of taking that approach over the last few weeks. We've been in this series called The Pursuit of Happiness. And what we're talking about is uh, everybody is on a quest to be happy, but how do we get there? What are the things that actually build happiness in, in the body? What are things that we can work towards um, that have a byproduct of, of helping us to be you know, just happier people? And so we talked a couple weeks ago uh, that one of them is this idea of connection or community, that we are connected to each other. And happiness is in part built by being in community with other people and not just living by yourself and being uh, uh, just going through life solo, but connecting with other people. Uh, the second idea we talked about last week is that happiness comes from contribution, that when you make something of the world, that when you do something, when you do good for others, it actually helps you inside. Not only does it help the people that you are making a difference for, but it helps you and it makes a difference inside of you. So connection, contribution, and today I want to talk about sort of a third piece of of happiness, and that's the idea of of coping, um, which is really the idea of like how we take care of ourselves when things are difficult or when we're going through stress or, or, or pain. Uh, now, there's lots of ways to approach that. You could talk about the science behind it, and maybe we'll get into a little bit of that. We could talk sort of philosophically around coping skills. And I want to talk, start with the Scripture and look what the Bible says about this. Now, understand right up front, the Bible is not a science textbook, and so it doesn't lay it out for us in scientific terms, which is what in the West we kind of love. We, we, we like sort of the scientific method, and, but the Bible doesn't go that way. The Bible is a collection of, of history and poetry and prophecy, and all of these things come together to explain to us the, the nature of reality, uh, who God is, who we are, what we're here for, what is our purpose and meaning in life. All of that is wrapped up in this collection of books that we call the Bible. But it's not a science textbook. It's not going to say like, to be happy, you need to get serotonin. To build serotonin, you need to do X, Y, and Z. But it is going to give us some ideas that I think if we investigate them and dig into them, they can help build happiness in us. And, and what I find as I read the Scripture, and this is why I still read a several thousand-year-old book, but what I find when I get into it is that you know we have all these latest and greatest ideas in philosophy and science and all that. And you, you hear this stuff, and you're like, oh, that's a really cool idea. And then, and then you go back into the Scripture, and you find out, oh, wait, the Bible was on this a couple thousand years ago. Like, we're just sort of figuring this out with science, but the Bible's already kind of been there and been talking about these things. And so uh, I want to 
walk through a, a couple ideas of, of how we can cope, how, uh, how we can uh, be, be healthier and, and essentially happier people. Uh, the first one is this, first idea I want to roll out, and this is not going to be a surprise to you. Number one idea is get enough sleep. Get more sleep. All right, go take a nap. We're dismissed. It's been good. Uh, no, uh, sleep is uh, crucially important and related to happiness. This happened to me a couple months ago. I was in a pretty stressful time, and call it pressure or stress or whatever, just dealing with a lot. And I, and I called a mentor of mine up in Northern Virginia. I was like, man, I was, and I started listening out all my problems and all the things going on. This is happening and this, and can you believe it? And my frustrations. And he's listening to me, all these things. He was like, oh yeah, that sounds hard. And then, he's, and then he stops me and he goes, um, hey, uh, how much sleep are you getting at night? And I'm like, that's irrelevant. Like, I, why, why are you asking me this? Like, I just told you about my problems. Uh, you know, you're talking to me about how much sleep I'm getting. Like, who cares? It doesn't matter. But he's like, no, no. He's, and he, he's got a good buddy that's a counselor, and he says, my, the counselor friend tells him this all the time. Uh, the reality is uh, how much sleep you get at night affects all of that, all of those things. Uh, if you're not sleeping well, you're not at your best, and, and everything gets magnified, and, and all your problems look bigger and all that. He's like, it, it's crucial that you get enough sleep. And I'm always like, no, nah, you know, I'm that guy that's like, you can sleep when you're dead. I don't need to sleep. I've got things I want to do. Um, but I'm a little conflicted about that because I really do like sleep. I really enjoy it. Like when I get to bed at night, I don't know how you guys are, but every time I get in bed, I feel like I've won something. I get in there, I'm like, yes, again, I'm here. Yes. I talk to my pillow. I'm like, I missed you so much. <laughs> it's good to see you again. We're back together again. I'm sorry I left for so long. You know, like I get it. I enjoy sleep. But then on the other side, I get a little bit like, you, you know, you can sleep when you're dead or like the devil never sleeps so you don't need to sleep or like, you know, just like I'm going to get up before the enemy while other people are sleeping. I'm working, you know, that kind of thing. Like I can go that route with it as well. You know, so when he comes along and he's like, uh, you really should get more sleep. I'm just like, wah, wah. All right, more sleep. I'm sure that's the answer. But the, there's some truth to it. Uh, author, neuroscientist Matthew Walker wrote a book last book, a book last year called "Why We Sleep," and he says, sums it up this way. He says, "The shorter you, the shorter your sleep, the shorter your life." Done. The shorter your sleep, the shorter your life, which means a lack of sleep is slowly killing us. Now, you're gonna say, "Well, not me." I mean, I know they recommend eight hours of sleep a night, but I don't need that much. I only need like six. And here's the deal with that. That's actually true. That is a genetic thing that they've discovered, that some people only need like six hours of sleep a night or some even less. Genetically, like there's a particular gene that, that is wired up that way and you only need that amount of sleep. But here's also the reality. You probably don't have that gene. It's like one in every 12,000 people have it. And it's probably not you. Like just odds, no one in this room probably. So if you say, I'm the kind of person I only need six hours of sleep, you probably need eight, just like the rest of us. You probably need at least eight. Scripture says it this way. Psalm 127, King David writes this in verse 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain, listen to this, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. 
I like the way the NIV translates it. It says, for God grants sleep to those he, he loves. So, so first of all, it says, it just gives this idea of like, look, unless God's in it, it's not going to succeed. If, if, you want, if you want to build something, if you want to create something, if God blesses it, it's going to succeed. If God is not blessing it, it doesn't matter how hard you work, it's not going to work. And then he ties that to your rest and said, look, you're getting up late and you're getting up uh, you're getting up early and you're staying up late. What, is, what do we call that? You're burning the candle at both ends is what David's describing. Put that verse back up there just for a second. We're burning the candle at both ends. You're, he said, you're eating the bread of anxious toil. Anxiety, worry, it's keeping you up late. It's, not, it's, it's, it's causing you to lack sleep. And he says, God gives sleep to those he loves or gives to his beloved sleep. Which, when you hear that, if you're an anxious person anyway, you just think that's one more thing to be anxious about. You're just like, oh, great, God doesn't love me in addition to me not being able to sleep. <laughs> you know, if he loved me, then I would sleep. Well, don't get, don't get super literal about it. I think generally the idea is when we are in relationship with God, when we are trusting him, we sleep better because our lack of sleep comes really, in a, in a lot of cases, it comes from a lack of trust. I don't know about you, but when I'm sleepless, it's because I'm worried because I worry too much. And, and Jesus clearly taught us that worry is connected to a lack of trust in God. So when I'm lying awake at night, oh, turning things over and over in my head, oh, what if this happens? What if this happens? What is that? That is worry. It is a lack of trust in God. And I have to train my brain and say, no, let God have this. It's going to be okay. Let God deal with it, whatever it is. Don't be so worried. That's why we don't sleep. Maybe, maybe our lack of sleep isn't, you know, low melatonin. Maybe our lack of sleep is, is low faith, low, low trust in God. Now, I know there's real things, you know, eat too much sugar, you'll be up late, sleep disorders, menopause. There's lots of reasons why people can't sleep well at night. And I understand those are all real things. I'm not talking about some of those. I'm just saying, generally, um, some, our, our lack of sleep can come from a lack of, of trust. So maybe... For us, the first step for health, for happiness, would be to trust God more and, and, and let him handle it. And maybe the most holy thing you could do today, today, you go, okay, I went to church, this is check, I've done a religious thing today. No, maybe the most godly, religious, holy thing you can do today is go home and take a nap in Jesus' name and just like sleep it off. This is, uh, if you can't sleep, turn on, I don't know, NASCAR. Just the noise in the background is like, oh, uh, yeah, okay, or golf or something. Like, maybe, maybe a holy thing that you could do today is, is take, take a nap. Um, certainly, if you're tired, that might be a good suggestion. Don't drink five-hour energy or coffee. That's not a good solution. Um, take a nap. So, so uh, one piece of happiness comes from coping and taking care of your body through just sleeping well. Um, and, and trusting God. But a second piece of happiness, and I really want us to focus here, has to do with your thinking, how you think. Um, and I want to turn to what I think is maybe the happiest chapter in the entire Bible. In the book of Philippians, chapter 4, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. I'll put it up on the screen here in a moment. But in, in Philippians, uh, it, it's a letter written to the church in Philippi, and the apostle Paul is writing it. And Paul, when he writes this letter, is in jail in Rome. And an ancient, you know, a first century Roman jail is a hole in the ground that they throw you down in and then they look down at you and occasionally feed you something and that's basically your life and Paul is living in that hole and he writes several letters of the New Testament 
from, from that space. If you're going to try to pick your happy place, it is not a hole in the ground in Rome, right? If you go, how do I want my life to end up? You know, Paul's kind of working through, where's my, you know, my 401k? I'm going to, you know, and then I'm going to have this, uh, and he lives near the Mediterranean, so they're all houses near the Mediterranean, but I'm going to get a house near the Mediterranean, you know, I'll do this, this is going to be great. Oh, wait, it's not working out. I'm in a hole in Rome, uh, and that's where my life finishes out. And then he's going to be taken out of that hole in order to be executed by, under, under, under Emperor Nero. This is how Paul's life goes. And I think if you read his letters in the New Testament, he wrote a chunk of them. If you read his letters, it, it's, it's shocking. The, if you, from an emotional, psychological standpoint, it's shocking to read where his head was in all of this, how he thought about his situation. He's so full of joy. He's so full of hope. He's so, dare I say, happy in whatever circumstance that he's in, and you read it and you go, how can you be happy? Being in jail is certainly nobody's happy place. That's not, how, how can you even do this? What is going on in him internally that helps him to endure? What is going on in him that allows him to withstand pain and suffering and hardship? How is it that Paul never saw those things as these setbacks that were going to cripple him or ruin him? Things that we would think, man, if that happened to me, that would ruin me. Paul didn't think about them that way. How did he do it? Well, I think the shorter answer is Paul believed that no matter what happened to him, he was connected to God through Jesus. And once that was right, nothing else mattered or everything else took second place to that. But listen to what Paul says from, from jail uh, in Philippians 4. What I, one of the happiest chapters, I think, in the entire Bible. Verse, start with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Does this sound like a guy writing from jail? He's saying, don't be anxious about anything. And very practically, he says, if you are anxious, here's what you do. You, you actually take that stuff to God. You pray to him. You speak to him. You communicate with him regularly and say, God, can you handle this? Because I can't, I can't handle it. Paul had every reason to be anxious. Even if, even if you say, well, Paul's on a mission f- for God. Well, the mission is not going well. He's in jail. He's not starting churches like he'd like to be. And yet God, in, in his wisdom, allowed Paul to write these things down that are recorded for us so that thousands of years later, we're still benefiting from it. We're still looking at a guy who's in the midst of incredible pain and suffering and going, no, man, it's, it's okay. Um, it's okay. Don't be anxious. Be Rejoice in God. Have some, have some joy in your life. Um, and, he, and, he, and he directs us to that. He points us to that. And he says the peace of God will, will that passes all understanding. There's a peace of God that will settle upon you when you give your anxiety to him, that you can't even explain or understand. It just will. And, I, and listen, I don't want to tell you that that's a guaranteed automatic right away thing. Okay, you're anxious. Oh, I prayed. I'm not anxious anymore. Sometimes that happens. But oftentimes it's more of a long-term, it's, it's sort of a slow burn that, that the peace of God descends upon you over time. So how can Paul be that peaceful? How does he do it in the midst of hard circumstances? How is he happy in, in that? Well, listen to what he says in the next verse. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, any, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Whatever, what, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's pointing us to something here that is really key for our own, our own health, our own happiness, uh, is, is that we, we think about the way that we think. We examine the, the, our mindset and we examine what thoughts we allow to kind of go through our heads and how we engage those thoughts. This has been huge for me in the last, I would say, four years is to, to really do a lot of work on, on thinking about my own thinking and not believing every thought that I have. Did you know you have permission to do that? You don't have to believe every thought that you have, right? And I've, I've been trying to do the work on myself in this and I've got a long way to go, but I'm trying to learn how to have thoughts and not let them have me and not be thrown and, and, and taken by every thought that, that, that I have. This is key for all of us because so much of our frustration, so much of our pain, so much of our suffering um, comes not just from things that happen to us, but from how we think about the things that happen to us. So it's important that we get our minds right. The, the Stoic philosopher, uh, ancient Greek philosopher Epictetus said this, men are disturbed not by things, but by the views which they take of them. And I don't know where you're at with Stoic philosophy, but I, I do think this is undeniably true. Um, you have to get your mind right because you're going to be most disturbed by all the stories you tell yourself about what all the things mean, right? You know this, something happens and then you write about four or five bad stories about that thing that happened, right? And you believe those and then you start getting real spiral and you've, you've done this, right? Um, am, I, am, I, am I the only one, right? No, this is, this is what we do. Um, our thinking needs to be examined and this is why Paul points us even in the midst of suffering, Paul points us to our thinking. Focus on what is noble, what is true, what is right, he says. If things are excellent or praiseworthy, think about that stuff. Uh, get your mind around that. Why, now, why is thinking so important to happiness? Well, because how we think about things is going to be the filter for everything that you experience. Happiness is not, oh, a, a bunch of good things just happened to me. It's not that way. If you're, if you're waiting on that, of all the right, the stars to align all the good things to happen, you're going to be mostly disappointed in life. Um, happiness can come uh, as a byproduct of, of, in part, getting our thinking right and, and, and turning things over in our mind in, in, in the right way. Paul understood this um, and, and points us to it. Viktor Frankl was a German psychiatrist uh, who was in a Nazi concentration camp. He's in Auschwitz. And uh, he survived Auschwitz, and he wrote about it, and he wrote about all the people, and he wrote about the psychological state of people in the concentration camp, and he collected it all in a book that he wrote called Man's Search for Meaning, which I think should be required reading for adults. Um, it's just, it's not a thick book. It's uh, really profound. And he talks about why people made it through the concentration camp, and for him, one thing is he was separated uh, from his family immediately, and, and they, were, they were killed, and the way he got through the hardest labor and the hardest moments of the concentration camp was to think about his wife. His constant thinking about his wife uh, helped him get into kind of a headspace to endure whatever was going on around him. In fact, he found uh, that, that our thinking and what we choose to think about was, was the key psychological factor for, for, our, for our health. He, listen to this quote from, from his book. He said, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, 
to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. You can strip everything away, and the Nazis did to him and many people. You can take everything away, and he would say, the only thing they can't get is what's going on in here. I have control over this, and I can choose how I'm going to relate to things and what my attitude will be about things. I think Paul understood this thousands of years earlier. This is how he can sit in jail and say, focus your mind on what is true, what is noble, what is right. Think about God. How do we do that? How do, how do you, I mean, oh yeah, sure, just think about God. That's going to solve all your problems. How, how would we even do that? Well, Eugene Peterson wrote a translation of the New Testament called The Message. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, and he has like a kind of a modern wording of a lot of these passages in, in the Bible. And listen to how he takes those same verses from Paul. Listen to how he writes it. it. says this, summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Isn't that great? He says, man, uh, think about it, and he, and he uses this word, um, meditate on it. In Greek, the, the, the word that Paul uses is uh, logizomai, and, it, and, it's the, and you can probably see the root word for logic in there, the word for thinking that he's using there. It means to, to ponder, to, to sort of uh, reckon, to consider, to turn things over in your head. Um, Eugene Peterson kind of translates that as meditate, uh, and, I, and I think that's fair, to meditate on the truth. So what does it mean to meditate on something? What does that actually mean? Well, I think there's two main ideas around meditation. One's a Christian sort of meditation, and one's uh, not Christian, I guess. Um, The Christian idea of meditation is what Paul is describing. He's describing that you chew on the truth, that you think about something, you turn it over and look at it from all sides and pull all the truth out of it and really... um, and, and really uh, dig into the depths of it. This is a Christian idea. Really, the Jews were, it's a Jewish idea as well. They were doing this kind of thing. You, you meditate on the, the truth. Um, you turn it over and over in your mind. You don't just read Scripture, but in, in many ways, you let it read you. you. You let it work you over. This is what David means when we started this series uh, four or five weeks ago, David in Psalm chapter one says, I'm meditating on God's law day and night. It's this idea that we chew on it over and over, and we look at it from all angles. Um, and, and, and I think there's a lot to that. There's a lot to the scriptures. I've heard it said the gospel is, is uh, shallow enough for a child to play in, but deep enough to drown an elephant. I think what they're talking about there is that the, the, the truth of Scripture, yeah, you can read it on ver- a very shallow level and kind of understand it. Like, okay, who did this thing? What did they do? What did they say? What does that mean? You, know, you can kind of do that angle. And then you can read it maybe on a deeper level as you keep going through it and go, okay, what are the different nuances of this? What are the ways that this challenges the way I think? What are the ways that this challenges what I believe, what world I'm living in, the, the circumstances that I'm, that I'm dealing with? And so meditating on Scripture is to do that work, to, to read it um, and, and let it challenge you. I think, uh, I think this has to do with happiness because I am happiest when I am aligned with the truth, when my thinking aligns with the truth in reality. Um, and so meditating on Scripture reminds me of what is true, and it helps me align my thinking with God's thinking. Um, 
And that's and that's a uh, that's a that's a powerful that's a powerful thing that you can do. And so when I read when I read the Bible in the morning and I read just a chapter and I go, okay, what are some phrases that jump out at me? One thing I like to do is I like to write down just a phrase or, or a few sentences. Some of you've been doing this in small groups with the different ways we've been doing the the, the Bible reading in small groups. Just find a phrase uh, and jumps out at you and just write it down and I, and and I chew on that throughout the day. Okay, here's a here's a phrase I'm thinking about. Um, that's, been, that's been helpful for me. That's a way to meditate on Scripture. The other type of meditation that when people say meditation, if you Google meditation, you'll probably find this kind more often. It's maybe something like um, uh, an Eastern sort of meditation, transcendental meditation, um, some Buddhist sort of thought, maybe uh, mindfulness. You'll hear that term thrown around a lot. Um, and for whatever reason, Christians get really freaked out about that. Uh, I, I don't get freaked out about it. Um, I, I, I think I get where that's going. And my experience with it has been, it's been a uh, it's sort of an exercise for the mind of slowing down, breathing, noticing the thoughts that you have, notice your body. If you've not done it, it's going to sound super boring to you. I, it's like, I feel like I'm describing paint drying over here, but it's really, um, it, is a, it is a slowing down and, and, and a, a sort of a restful posture where, where you try to just um, not get so busy in your mind and, and try to relax. And I have experienced it as, um, you know, if, if, if lifting weights builds up the body, then I think meditation can help build up the mind in, in that it helps the mind be a little stronger. And, and it helps you to notice the thoughts you're having and not grab onto every single one of them. It's been likened to um, watching the cars go by in your brain, like all your thoughts are cars going by. And what would it be like to just watch them go by and not grab onto them and let them pull you somewhere? Um, and so I've, I've, I've done a little bit of that to tr- to, just to try to, to practice breathing and, and, and slowing down and slowing my pace and um, have, have helped, found that to be helpful. Um, so in summary here, connection a couple weeks ago, contribution last week, and then coping uh, this week, sleeping and, and thinking and, and really meditating um, these things are in Scripture. They're also very much backed up by science. Uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Happiness Hypothesis, he has a chapter in there. He says if people want to be free of depression, the, the three best things to be free of depression and happy, right, he says in this book, are um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which we're not going to get into right now, but it's n- not that dissimilar to some of the things I've been talking about about how we think. Um, and it's meditation is the second thing he suggests, and then Prozac was the third thing, um, which... You know, I, I, I don't think our faith is opposed to all of those things. I, I think Christians have been practicing meditation for thousands of years. I think uh, we've been practicing something like cognitive behavioral therapy. I think Paul is pointing us to that. Replace these thoughts with these thoughts. Think this way instead of thinking about these other things. So next steps for us. A couple ideas. Number one, um, maybe you just need to get some sleep. Sleep it off. Um, if you get into a pretty dark place, um, we're running some sleep debt, and it might be time to catch up. Um, now, I know there's some must-see Netflix, and those shows are not going to watch themselves like you're going to have to, right? Um, but I also think it's very interesting that the CEO of Netflix uh, recently, I don't know if you heard this, but you, you think, all right, who's Netflix's biggest competitor at this point? Maybe like Amazon Prime or Hulu or something like that. Um, the CEO of Netflix said, our biggest competitor is sleep. That's reality. That's why that, that's why that show auto-starts the next episode when the first one's done. 
There's a reason they're doing that to you guys. Like, they're very intentional. They realize their biggest competitor is you sleeping. That's not healthy. That's, you know, maybe a fun show, but that's not going to make you happy in the long run. So sleep. And then the second suggestion I would have is, is meditate on God's word. Try this. I talked to a buddy here in the church this week. He's like, I've been trying to read Mark a little bit each morning. Do that. Do Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read Philippians that we just looked at. Read one of these things and just chew on it a little bit every single day. 10 verses, 20 verses, a whole chapter. Chew on it and, and see what God does with it. Maybe write down some thoughts that you're having on it. Take a few minutes before you start into the, the hustle and bustle. Maybe late at night or maybe first thing in the morning. Maybe if you get a lunch break. Take a few minutes and read and, and let the stuff challenge you. Don't just get through it. Let it get through you. Because I think if you do that, if you meditate on it, over the time you will know the truth. Jesus says it this way, John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The happy place is a free place where we know the truth that God has given us, and we live in alignment with it. And, it, and, and that truth, Jesus promises, if we stick with him, that truth will set us free. This isn't going to come easy. Look, I, I, I sit across the table from people in this church, and I know there are lots of people who are not in a happy place right now. I know that for a lot of people, a happy place seems very, very far off. It's miles away. And I know there's a lot of pain. And I don't want to trivialize that or oversimplify or... or, or or anything like that. Um, and if I, if I had a, a, a magic wand I, and I could just wave it away for people, I, I think I would. But the reality is this. I, I, we're, on a, we're on a journey here, a long one. This life is, is more marathon than sprint. And, and on this journey, um, we need to take step after step, day after day, and just do the little things. We need to make sure we're getting to sleep. We need to... Uh, meditate on the truth and let it reform and, and reshape us and ultimately set us free and set us to a much happier free place. Um, I, I think that is our best, our best chance for walking through pain. So let me end by praying, and I want to pray for particularly those who are in a lot of pain today. Um, let, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know um, even the conversation about happiness can feel odd when um, happy is not something we're feeling and we haven't felt for quite a while. God, I, I pray that the truth of this sinks in, that, that Paul in the darkest of spaces in a, in a Roman jail could still speak up and, and still challenge us to rejoice. Um, God, um, that is an option available to us as well. We can, we can set our minds, we can think about our thinking and, and, and get it in line with your truth. God, I pray your truth is revealed to us, that we dive into your word, that we learn it, that we let it uh, reform and reshape us, that we meditate on it and chew on it. Um, I pray that we do that and that um, you, you do your work that you promise in, in us. God, we are most free when we are aligned with your truth. We are most free when we live under your constraints. Um, and so uh, I, I pray you help us to do that, whatever it takes. Uh, thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.